0: Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 2 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, murder near the Magic Kingdom. I'm Leonora Lapeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. Police and prosecutors then and now are convinced they got the right man. Let's go back to 1975 to Winter Garden before the murders. The rural town on the southern edge of Lake Apopka was surrounded by miles and miles of orange groves and packing houses. That's how the scrappy population survived. Its oranges were prized, and the train that carried those oranges elsewhere chugged right through downtown. Each winter, labor camps in Winter Garden and neighboring Oakland filled with mostly black migrant workers there to pick the oranges. Eight miles to the south, the Magic Kingdom had just opened. Connie Crawford Ziegler's cousin recalled the
3: era. Things were well different. Everywhere you went was growth. And when when the trees bloomed, it was just about like you could just about taste honey in the air. It was, it was so fragrant. And uh, so we had lots of black people that came in. Some of them came in as seasonal workers, and they lived in um, camps that uh, back in those days, if a uh, Business was going to bring in temporary help. They had to be responsible for their um, health, health care and for a place for them to live. So there, there was, I don't know what percentage you'd put from, to, from black to white, but it, it seems to me like it was almost
0: 50-50. When the pickers arrived, the town was half black, half white, and segregated and it would continue that way for another couple decades. Well, the citrus
4: era lasted until the freezes, particularly in the late 70s, 80s. Uh, and it, but it was a typical small town, and you couldn't go four blocks from the intersection of Maine and Plant without being out of town. It was just a, a simple life. We were very safe. We never worried. Parents were saying, I no, don't talk to strangers. Well, there were no strangers, so that took care of that.
0: That's Rod Reeves, the town historian. The place he describes was rattled by the crime at the Ziegler Furniture Store.
4: None of it ever made sense. I don't think it ever made sense to anybody. Really, people had opinions.
0: Well, see, I, I, could,
4: I, could, I could never comprehend it. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I couldn't comprehend that this happened. It was presented at the trial, and... Uh, It sounded plausible, but I mean, who am I to say? You know what I'm saying? I don't know anything about anything like that, you know. Um, So I, I remember my dad saying to Tommy's mother, he said, I can only leave it up to the courts and the good Lord. He said, he said, There's no point in his having an opinion or saying anything.
0: Tommy Ziegler had met his wife Eunice at a winter garden elementary school where she was a kindergarten teacher and he coached youth football. Eunice sang and played the organ at the large, brick First Baptist Church on Plant Street. She and Tommy got married there in 1967. Tommy was tall and thin. He wore his hair in a buzz cut and used thick, dark glasses. He was on the town beautification committee and he drove a pickup truck. Eunice was thin, too, with green eyes and curly brown hair. When people talk about her, they all say how kind she was.
2: She was calm, cool, and as a cucumber. All the time for as long
0: as I knew, that's Curtis Dunaway, who used to work at the Ziegler Furniture Store. The Zieglers fawned over five Persian cats, which they bred and showed, and told friends they were trying to have a child. His parents, Beulah and Tom, lived in the house next door on Temple Grove Road. Ziegler's social circle included the town's municipal judge, a banker, and the Winter Garden police chief. They often got together with their wives. In the summer of 1975, Ziegler's father had a severe stroke, so Eunice replaced him as an officer in the company. That fall, Ziegler took out loans to build a swimming pool and to buy a new Oldsmobile Toronado for his wife. At Christmas, they were expecting her parents down from Georgia for the holidays. And Eunice and Tommy planned to attend a Christmas Eve party for law enforcement officers at the home of a municipal judge in Winter Garden. They went every year. I asked Curtis whether he had seen any tension between Tommy and Eunice.
2: I thought it was a match made in heaven.
0: Curtis Dunaway saw the family earlier that Christmas Eve. He had come over to the house to borrow a car. Eunice had baked a cake with white icing and offered him a slice. He said they treated him like family. He still thinks about everything that happened and about Ziegler's innocence.
2: 99 and 99 one percent sure. There has to be... Someone else involved in this. You can't tell me there isn't because there is. There has to be because one person can't kill four people and the four people not doing anything to get out of to get out of the harm's way. And you cannot tell me if Tommy Ziegler did it. Why would he kill his mother, his mother-in-law, and father-in-law? Why would he kill his
0: wife? My God, Eunice was as sweet as she could be. Despite the idyllic picture that the town historian paints of Winter Garden, it's also important to remember the times they were living in back in 1975. The violence of the Jim Crow era was still so recent, and West Orange County seethed in racial tension. Blacks and whites lived together, yet apart. The county school district had ignored the U.S. Supreme Court's desegregation order of 1954 for years. Integration had only been completed three years before. The KKK had been particularly active in West Orange County through the 1950s and 60s. A field on the edge of town was named the Stomping Grounds because that's where KKK members flogged their victims. The most powerful residents belonged to the Klan. Town managers, judges, county commissioners, even the six-term sheriff who had just retired in 1971. The killings at the furniture store took place in the midst of that transition when a black man's words still often meant nothing against a white man's. Yet investigators in the Ziegler case quickly decided to believe the account of a black handyman who had one of the murder weapons over the white businessman who'd been shot. And they concluded that Ziegler, a man with no criminal record, killed four people within an hour, shot himself in the stomach as a ruse, and tried to frame black men as would-be robbers.
3: Yeah, when Tommy was in high school, the Ziegler furniture store was one of the few businesses that would give credit to black people. And so uh, they would go out each week and collect money. He was very comfortable around black people. I was completely opposite. Growing up, I, I went to school in and in, in my childhood, I knew two black
0: people. That's Connie Crawford, Tommy Ziegler's cousin. She is his closest surviving relative. She remembers that Christmas Eve at the hospital after finding out Tommy had been
3: shot. The uh, operating room where they had carried Tommy was on the third floor, and we went up. The waiting room was too small. There were so many people that came down that night to see about Tommy and his parents and and Eunice. We were were looking for Eunice. We couldn't find her. And Tommy had said to his mother when she asked him about where's Eunice, he said, mother, She was meeting you at church, but we couldn't find Eunice, and we did not have uh, any contact with the investigators or the police.
0: By then, of course, Eunice Ziegler and her parents were dead. Curtis Dunaway was called to identify the bodies. Though Dunaway wasn't a family member, police wanted to make identifications quickly. The medical examiner met Dunaway at the store and gave him instructions.
2: When he met me at the door, he said, You follow me. Do not look up, down, right, or left. And when my foot uh, picks up and goes another step, you put yours in my print. And so I followed him to the back of the store. He went to Mr. Edwards first.
0: Next, he walked over to Charlie Mays's body. His trousers were pulled down, Dunaway said, and there was money falling out of his pockets.
2: He had money in every pocket and thing that you could put money in. He looked like a walking money tree. I can't tell you what I think, because I was in shock to think that this was going on. or he And it bugged me, it bothered me. And then when I got to the kitchen where Eunice was, that really bugged me because she was the salt of the earth. She was a good lady, and nobody can say anything bad about her. But my thing with Eunice, is, the front door is here. Okay, you're the, I mean, you're the kitchen door. She was back here and she was shot in the back of the head. If you were shot in the back of the head, you would have fallen forward, not backwards.
0: The medical examiner made him come back through another time. And aside from being emotional, he was scared and worried that the killer or killers were still out there.
2: Well, I, I was upset that thinking that I was gonna be the next person somebody was gonna kill because I had keys, everything that the Zigglers owned. And, and, and it was just as though I was one of the family. If I wanted something in the store, I got it or paid less price for it. If they went anywhere, they always take me. And they were all very, very kind to me. Every one of them, Tom and Beulah and Tommy. We, we got along fine together until that happened.
0: On Christmas morning in 1975, Attorney Terry Hadley got a phone call and learned about the murders the night before. He went to see Ziegler at the hospital.
1: He was awake. He was groggy, uh, but uh, basically told in a groggy you know, fashion because he'd had surgery. Uh, basically, the same story he was told on the witness stand six months later,
0: which was
1: that. He'd gone in, he had been jumped in the store, had been in a fight and somebody had shot him and uh, uh, that uh, he'd called to Van Vendors' home because he knew the chief of police was supposed to be there at a party, Christmas party, and uh, said that he was in the store and had been shot. He was not aware at that point in time that there was anybody else in there with him.
0: Just two days after the murders, Hadley met Detective Don Fry in the hospital waiting room. Fry, remember, was the young detective assigned to handle the case. As Hadley remembers it, Fry said he believed Ziegler was guilty and he thought he could wrangle a confession if given the chance. Hadley refused to allow him to talk to his client.
1: Having been a former prosecutor and worked with a lot of good law enforcement officers, and Don Fry, I think, was, was a very young guy. It, He was a good officer. He was trying to do his job. But a lot of policemen, when they make up their mind about a theory of the case, then go out to prove their theory and quit doing an open investigation. Instead of, uh, as you see on these TV shows, where they put all the stuff up and they write and that kind of stuff. And so two things happen. Number one, they're out to substantiate their own theory. And number two, they're inclined to disregard or perhaps even make go away evidence that would not sustain their theory or or would disprove it because they're convinced they're right and they're convinced that they're out there doing their job which is to get rid of the bad guys
0: the case would hang strongly on two men handyman edward williams and a fruit picker who had come forward to recount ziegler's actions that night The fruit picker was initially identified as a man named Robert Foster in newspaper accounts of the case. Three weeks later, though, the lead investigator on the case would say that was a typographical error, and the fruit picker's name was Felton Thomas.
1: Because, in my opinion, when the two key black gentlemen, Edward Williams and Felton Thomas, were presented as witnesses, there was little effort made to verify the veracity of their story.
0: When Ziegler's attorney went to the crime scene, he came away with lots of questions. One of them involved the location of Charlie Mays' truck. Mays, some would later testify, had come to pick up a TV. But the truck wasn't parked near the store.
1: There's no way to get into the store from where it's located. Felton Thomas testified that they came around the store and drove straight in. The problem is there is a three-foot concrete block wall that runs beside the Ziegler store behind... The adjacent property that divides the frontal properties here with a parking lot for the Winter Garden Inn.
0: To Hadley, that suggests that Mays didn't want his truck to be seen.
1: I've always believed that Charlie Mays was not a victim, but he was a perpetrator.
0: But as Hadley said earlier, Fry had locked in on Ziegler. On December 29th, five days after the crime, the detective outlined the case against Ziegler to a group of other officers. Fry said Ziegler had taken insurance policies out on his wife and stood to make a lot of money. He'd lured the three black men to the store to make it look like a robbery. He'd shot himself in the stomach. And there was another motive. Eunice had caught her husband in a homosexual affair, Fry said.
1: It was just a complete bogus bunch of baloney, but there are a lot of people who believed it.
0: Curtis Dunaway, the man who worked for Ziegler, says Ziegler wasn't gay. But Dunaway, who is... New married men who were living double lives and having affairs with men. There was such a stigma back then.
2: Back in those days, if you were gay, you were the rake and scrape and scourge of the earth. Nobody liked you, even your own parents didn't like you.
0: Orange County Chief Deputy Lee McEachern, known in the department as Chief Iceblood because he was never ruffled, was at that meeting where Fry outlined the case. McEachern is Ray McEachern's brother. Ray is the man in the previous chapter who was offering the $25,000 reward in Winter Garden. The brothers have talked a lot about the case over the years. At that meeting with Fry, Lee McEachern asked about the supposed homosexual affair and was told it came from a confidential source. That bothered McEachern, and like Hadley, he noticed where Charlie Mays' van was parked. And then there was Tommy Ziegler's wound,
5: I've handled cases where police officers and others have shot themselves in the leg and so forth to gain sympathy, but I never, ever had a case or read of a case where one shot himself in the stomach and expected
0: to survive it. McEachern asked that investigators triangulate the wound. That means analyzing angles to figure out how the shooting happened.
5: And a few days later, they brought me the diagrams that the crime scene investigators had determined, and it was obvious that uh, a right-handed person, which Tommy Ziegler is, could not have shot himself holding the gun in his dominant right hand, and it was not a contact wound. And if you study them, and I studied them in a homicide school, years before that, uh, self-inflicted wounds that you intend to survive, A, are always in the dominant hand, and B, it's always a contact wound so you can stabilize the point of entry. Had a highway patrolman shot himself in the calf of the leg, made it look like a bunch of motorcycle gang had, had ambushed him. But it was a contact wound and it was with his dominant right hand because he didn't want to hit the bone and he didn't want to hit any blood uh, arteries. So we knew right away when I looked at that, I said, "Ain't the way It couldn't happen that way.
0: McEachern expressed his concerns to his boss about the case, but he was told that Robert Egan, the state attorney, agreed with Fry that Ziegler was guilty. Everybody was eager to make an arrest. Police were already chasing down other high-profile crimes. A group known as the Ski Mask Bandits hadn't been caught. They had been involved in a string of robberies and rapes in West Orange County. A few weeks before, the South Trail Slasher had killed a used car salesman and a convenience store clerk along South Orange Blossom Trail. There's enough fear in this county, McEachard recalls being told.
5: I think Don and I rode out there together in my car and went into the hospital. The two of us walked down to the room. I opened the door, the nurse was there. She came out and I asked Tommy a few questions. And then introduced Don Fry and stepped back, let Don stand just inside the door. And I said, Mr., uh, I don't think I even called him my name. I said, Sir, my name is Lee McEachern. I'm with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Can you tell me what your name is? And he did. He looked kind of surprised. He obviously was a little weak had to take a tube out of his mouth to talk. I said, do you know where you are? He said, yes, I'm in the hospital. I said, do you know what day it is? He said, I'm not sure, but it's right around Christmas. I said, okay, thank you very much. And then I introduced Don Fry and said, This is Don Fry. He's a detective and he's going to read an arrest warrant to you. And I think Mr. Ziegler said something like, You're getting ready to arrest me?
0: On the next episode of Blood and Truth.
2: Yes, ma'am. I felt that gunshot when it hit me. It was like a hot poker being driven through you.
0: There was like a flash, just just very quick. Catch up with the earlier episode of this podcast on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes.